0: ladies and gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back to corner kick it's been about 10 days since our last episode we took a a mini hiatus as we like to do in the summer. But this episode is going to be a bit of a a smorgasbord, a a hodgepodge, a smodgepodge, if you will, of different topics from around the world. Roy Hodgson. Yes, exactly. We'll look at the Olympics today. We'll talk about some recent developments in the football manager world and obviously give a good overview of some transfers that we like and some that we do not like. As always, I'm Nathan Strauss, joined by someone whose Cyprus is not competing in the Olympics. It's Caleb Rhodes. Unfortunately.
1: You know, we're we're working on developing our athletic talent. Maybe, honestly, maybe there's something I can qualify at and re- represent Cyprus and be like that guy.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, you can be like one of those Brazilian players who like naturalizes for like the Ukraine or like the UAE and suddenly just, you know, becomes part of their national team or something. Exactly. You exactly.
2: become like the, whatever the Cy- Cypriot equivalent of like the Tongan flag bearer is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dude.
0: Exactly. You know, I, I
1: always, with my glistening abs all oiled up. That's uh, that's what the
0: people want. So wow, I'll this has that been already an incredibly sexual podcast, and we're only a minute and twenty seconds. in. we're sensual, also sensual. Fair enough. We're also joined by someone whose club is about to make the marquee signing of former championship winger Jared Bowen. It's Nick Evenden.
2: I really just love how my introduction is like a dig. And Caleb, this was like very glamorous.
0: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Crapping on Cyprus is super glamorous. No, no. I'm the other just, option just was going to be to make man. a wedding joke, so I figured I would pass on that for now. Uh, that's a good point.
2: I'm not getting married,
0: by the way. That is. Uh, <laughs> I just want <laughs> before people assume
2: that. Uh, yeah, but anyways, Nathan and I were just talking about my like cousin's wedding before this started recording. But yeah. Um, Yeah, Jared Bowen is on Liverpool's uh, shortlist, it seems, according to a lot of reputable uh, names, and I'm sure we can talk about that. But, you know, am I happy about it?
0: No, not really. I think that's uh, I think that is fair to say. So why don't we open up before we get on to transfers? Let's open up by talking about the event that has dominated the last couple of days in the news. And that is obviously the 2020 slash 2021 Olympics. In Tokyo. And we want to talk specifically about soccer at the Olympics, because I think that so far this tournament has really soured me on the idea of even including soccer in the Olympic Games. I'm curious as to what you guys think. And uh, we can look at the French squad as an example of this. But I know we've had a lot of good examples of uh, why Olympic soccer might not be the future uh, of the Olympics. Caleb, do you want to do you want to start us off on this? So, I think at least on the men's soccer side, one of the things that makes
1: Olympic soccer not the best is that it's this weird under 23 format, which isn't really a thing. And you also get the three overage players, which makes it even stranger. And then what ends up happening is you tend to have a bunch of 24 year old players who can play under 23 soccer, who are probably never going to be good enough to play for their national teams. They don't actually get a cap for their team, so it's not even that special. And it ends up cheapening the value of an Olympic gold, which I think should represent you know, the apogee of your sport. And for a lot of sports, it is true. For something like swimming or gymnastics, where the Olympics is like the highest level of competition you can get to when you've already had a summer that's had Copa Americas and Euros the quality of the Olympics is just so much less and so for that reason it just seems to sort of cheapen the value of you know the Olympics as a concept.
2: I think Caleb makes an interesting point there when it comes to the value of an Olympic gold medal and Rory Smith from the New York Times actually wrote a very good piece this past week on Danny Alves, you know, 38 year old uh, legend of the game, Brazil legend, European football legend, Barcelona legend, however you want to coin him. Uh, going after his first Olympic gold medal at the age of 38 with this Brazil national team, this essentially Brazil U23 team. And to him, the idea was pitched as uh, let's get you that Olympic medal so it can be the last, you know, trophy to add to your expansive trophy chest you know like he's one of the winningest players in soccer's history so I think for like that like a wholesome story like that and a a unique story like that it it makes a bit more sense however I I think it is true that you know it's certainly not at least on the men's side the, the pinnacle of the game whatsoever and if anything you can look at the Spanish national team and look at the players that they've brought over from Euro 2020, which let's not forget ended just two weeks ago. You can look at Pedri and you can look at, you know, the, the bags underneath his eyes and just how tired he looks from going from from Europe, immediately hopping on a, on a flight over to Japan. It's the same for Dani Olmo and Pau Torres and Mikel Yartsebal too. And also, you know, the French national team is one of the deepest pools of talent anywhere in world soccer and and uh, you know good for him that he's chasing this this gold medal with the team but Andre Gignac at the age of 35 certainly isn't you know one of the the elites of the game anymore even if he is still a very very quality striker i think there is merit you know to having soccer at the olympic games you know we talk about you know that really famous 2004 argentina national team with the likes of messi mascherano etc coached by uh, Marcelo Bielsa. And I think there are moments there are moments in time like that when I think it becomes really important to have soccer at the Olympic Games. Another one is Neymar winning gold in 2016 with Brazil. In Brazil. Yeah, in Brazil, in Rio. So I think there there are flashpoints of Olympic soccer greatness on the men's side. I think the women's side is very important and we can talk about that too. Cause I think it means something totally different. But yeah, certainly I think in an age where we're getting more and more international tournaments and more and more expansions of international tournaments too, uh, this is the biggest Euros ever in terms of players and teams, I think it becomes a little more watered
0: down. I think one thing that we also should probably discuss, and that I think I talked to Caleb about the other day, is that FIFA obviously has very different sort of governance and oversight when compared to the IOC. And the way that the Olympics are presented as sort of how they define nations and invite nations to compete does not align with how FIFA recognizes international or rather national teams. So we saw, you know, Team Great Britain crash and burn on home turf in 2012. They couldn't come to an agreement for a team in 2016. And obviously the same was true this year you are sort of inadvertently excluding non-sovereign areas from participating in this tournament which is a little dicey because you think about the fact that the uk is comprised of you know probably what four of the best 50 teams in the in the world in england scotland ireland northern ireland rather not ireland sorry northern ireland um and wales so those teams are either forced to sort of unify under this badge that no one really wants to, to play for or not compete at all. Um, the same is true on the women's side where Team Great Britain had a grand total of one friendly to play as a team before you know, heading off to Tokyo. So it's sort of an uncomfortable situation there as well. Um and I think I do think that Olympic soccer has value on the women's side. Some of the most, maybe the most iconic picture in soccer history, at least women's soccer history, and certainly American soccer history, came from that 1999 Olympic team um, and their incredible run. But um, I sort of question its value. I question um, its purpose on the long term, especially as it's not these aren't FIFA sanctioned matches. You know, they're not official. They're not getting caps. And what they are doing is, you know, adding just more roadblocks to players in an era in which fitness is uh, is so hard to come by by virtue of all of all of these tournaments, both club and international.
1: Also, maybe you guys know, how do teams even like how do they even pick which like 16 teams
0: compete? It's qualifying. Oh, so because you because the U.S. lost. Um, remember, the, Mexico. US Mexico it, yeah, the U.S. made like, so it. Yeah, the U.S. lost to Mexico. Um, with their U23 side. But again, the U23 side, it's not a real thing, right? Like U23 soccer doesn't exist. FIFA sanctions World Cups up to U21, which makes perfect sense. But by the time you're 21 or older, you're either playing for your first team squad at the club level or you're not. And, the idea well, that then, players like they're, Teji they're Savanier over
2: the age of 21 who play in U21 World Cup, right? I
0: mean, because it's it all it's all about the qualifying cycle. But the idea that like, oh, a 24 or even a 25 year old could be eligible for a quote unquote U23 tournament, like 25 is you know you're entering the prime of your career as a soccer player. And like as much as I know that Caleb, you and we've all we all love Teji Savanier for his sort of analytics uh, performance of the scored season.
2: a 90th minute winner against South Africa. But, like, there's no
0: reason that Teji Savanier should be, like, playing in an international tournament that's supposed to represent, like, the apex of your sport. How dare you? So, well, I mean, Teji
1: Savanier should have been in that France squad, if we're being honest. He would have been the glue. For the Euros. Okay? You substitute Conte for Savanier, France win the
2: Euro 2020s. That is a bold take. Teji, Teji, Teji definitely, I think, you know, I'm glad. See, the, here's, here's the alternative <laughs> point, though, like genuinely, genuinely, is that I am glad that a player like Teji, you know, someone who's never going to be, you know, a massive star on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things for France, gets a moment like scoring a 92nd minute winner at the Olympics for his country you know, that that I think is something to consider, is that, you know, these maybe little less heralded players, like a Teddy Savane, like a Gignac, um, you know, like a Nadia Mamiri for Germany, who's, I think, been their standout player of the tournament so far. These players get in an international tournament like this to display what, you know, we might not have seen at the highest level from these guys. You know, I think that is, it's definitely not,
0: but here's the question, though. The is peak? it truly the highest level? No, no, no. Right. I think
2: that's what I was going to say. Is It's definitely not the peak. However, I think it is a good thing that, you know, these... I don't want to call them cult heroes. Certainly for us, Teji is a cult figure. But players like a Teji or an Amiri or perhaps like even a Richarlison, who's the best player on the Brazil team this time around, get these sort of moments even though I don't like Charles.
1: Uh yeah, I think the only way for me to like reform this would be to make it a full-on tournament. Cuz the the you couldn't really make it a U21 tournament because then it would make it sort of even more like lesser in a lot of ways or like less legitimate. And so I think you ha- would have to make it just like the same type of thing as a normal tournament, but then I think nations would be like we simply can't do this when it's like on cycle what? with euros and stuff and so i think that's probably why they end up at u23 but i think it's not a good compromise
0: yeah also if you guys want to laugh like take a look at the 2012 team great britain um national team
1: didn't uh what's his name craig bellamy was like the headline yeah it was was
0: Yeah. yeah here take a look at uh take a look at the uh the squad for it was craig bellamy um you know Sturridge and Ramsey were both on that team. Ryan Giggs was on the team. Scott Ugh. Sinclair. Scott Sinclair wow. was on this team. So, again, just a completely. And Stuart Pierce was the manager. Uh, Psycho was like, the
2: manager? Yeah. Honestly, just oh my God.
0: That like, Honestly, Scott Sinclair might be like the perfect
1: Team GB player. Right. Like, average Englishman who plays in Scotland. Like, that seems like prime territory for Team GB.
0: So by and large, I think we can sort of come to an agreement that there needs to be some sort of reform made to Olympic soccer on the men's side in order to uh, keep it at least somewhat entertaining and also, you know, increase its value long term. Do we want to move on a little bit to uh, transfers? See, I feel like we need like
2: a transfers button or like a transfers song or something. (laughs) Maybe I got to go to Will and ask him for something. Yeah, I think that's your domain, Nick, though. Audio. We'll see
1: what you whip up in
2: post. No, no I know. I I, I'll come up with something for next time. Let's see. We'll see.
0: We're talking about transfers. Let's talk about some transfers. Normally <laughs> at this point.
2: Transfers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm talking about, about transfers. 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 Um, so we're looking at transfers as we've already established <laughs> in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> Wait, what are we looking at? Give me a T. No. <laughs> Give me an R. Give me an A, N, S, F. Wait, how do you spell transfers? E-R. Yes, there we are.
1: There we go. So
0: despite this last minute of discussing exactly what we're talking about, um, this has been an incredibly underwhelming transfer market, in my opinion. Um, We talked a little bit about it before going on the air today. What what whelms you, Nathan? What What do you find whelming? I think last summer's transfer market was pretty whelming. Yeah, but this great. is this is underwhelming, in my opinion. I think we're starting to see the COVID uh, impacted finances really taking hold.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: nothing better illustrates that than by the number of high value free transfers that we're seeing in comparison to sort of marquee blockbuster transfers from around Europe. So I, I'm curious as to how you guys have viewed the, so, some of the bigger moves that we've seen so far this year. Which Which one would you like to start with? Well, I think, why don't we start off, we can start off with Sancho because it is the biggest one so far, but really I was sort sort of looking for a more holistic overview of the transfer market as a whole as we sit, you know, two weeks and three days before the Prem season opens.
2: Okay, so, yeah, let's start with United, right? I think that's, they're probably, they've made the biggest splash so far outside of, you know, maybe the potential of Man City moving for a Harry Kane or a Jack Grealish. I think... You look at the pieces that United have always needed in this team to contend, and they've filled two out of the three, you have to say, with Jaden Sancho coming in on the right wing and uh, Rafael Veron coming in at center back. And I think you'd have to say that the only thing that they need now in order to truly contend and have all the pieces for a team that could potentially win the Premier League is a, a first-team central defensive midfielder. I mean, I'll be honest— I am not uh, super comfortable with United having Jaden Sancho, who is an electric talent. Uh, His goals and assists metrics are up there with some of the top 10 players in the world. His skill set is exactly the kind of game-breaking player that United need on that right-hand side. Uh, He's going to be an absolute force for them. He's going to be someone who's going to put asses in seats, which is something that they need. (laughs) And also, I think Varane is as close to a sure thing at center back as you're going to get, and especially in the Premier League where the trend that we're seeing now is center backs who can play a bit more of a high line, who are a bit quicker and a bit more technical on the ball. I think he ticks all those boxes. So I think this has been a, a as close to an A transfer window from Manchester United as you can get, and the only thing they need to do now is to find that DM. Yeah, this
1: is like an A++ plus 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 transfer window from Man U who got Sancho at a huge discount from what Dortmund were quoting him for last year and got Varane, who as Nathan was telling me before the pod has become significantly more affordable over the past few years after some admittedly high profile errors um, in the champions league, especially, but Man U are really the only team like spending money out here also which, well, which I, well, Arsenal, right? Arsenal, this is but the it's funny different, thing, but it's right? different. Um, Arsenal haven't actually technically spent money yet, right? Either. Um, but like, man, you're the only team splashing the cash. I'm not really sure where, where it comes from. Um, even PSG, who I think we should talk about, who have had probably the best or the second best transfer window, the only money they've spent is on Hakimi for 54 million, which is exactly his value. And that's huge. But then they're also getting. Donnarumma on a free, they're getting Jeannie Wijnaldum on a free they got Sergio Ramos on a free, wow they, they, they are going to be
0: quite a force I think. Yeah well I think that's sort of what I was getting at so when you look at the fees that have actually been spent so far this transfer window Sancho's is the highest at 93 million but then there's only one other transfer that's been made at over 50 million and that was Hakimi to PSG a transfer that as you mentioned Caleb I think is well worth the money Otherwise, you've got deals like Upamecano, um, who went for 20 million below his market value. You've got Buendia and Konate, who both went for around 44 million, slightly above their market value, but they're 22 and 24 years old, respectively. So, I think we were expecting this summer to feature, you know, maybe an Erling Holland deal, maybe a Lautaro Martinez deal, both of which would have gone for or should have gone for, you know, between 80 and 100 million, if not more. But instead, what we've got is a lot of transfers between like 20 million and 45 million um, instead as teams are sort of priced out of these massive moves and i have to think that what ends up happening is you know aside from Sancho this hurts PS- this hurts selling teams so teams like dortmund or teams like ajax with lots of movable talent because they can't command those bigger prices that we were seeing a few years ago um, but it's going to be really interesting. And, and you mentioned Arsenal. So far, the deals that Arsenal have made, bringing in Sambula Conga um, from Belgium and also Nuno Tavares from Benfica. FM for, God, yeah, F.M. Conga, FM God, I just want to say. Sambula um, you know, both are good moves. I think what Arsenal have done so far is they have gotten significantly younger, which was huge. Um, you know, Arsenal lost Ceballos back to Madrid um, you know who they had had on loan. They lost huge guard. Huge loss. <laughs> well, in terms of just the sort of squad no, no. In composition, terms of, yeah, yeah, right. And and Xhaka has sort of been in a will he won't he with Mourinho's Roma for the last couple of weeks. So Arsenal needed you know cover in the wing back position, and they got that for very cheap um, with Nuno Tavares, who's also quite young. He scored a goal on his preseason debut. They needed midfield um, sort of rotation with La Conga who I think is a is a good transfer again young a captain a leader which I think is super nice. And elsewhere I think Arsenal are going to bring in Ben White for significantly above market value. <laughs> and this is for a more weird more than United are is, paying for Veron. Uh slightly which, uh, less for for slightly less than United are paying for Veron. We'll point see. Being, regardless Arsenal It's it's in the ballpark. A, yeah.
1: It's in the ballpark. Yeah.
0: It's a for for a 23 year old English center back it's overpaying. Um, on the other hand, I like the transfer as a player. I wish we were, weren't paying as much money for him, but we did desperately need a stalling. We did desperately need a starting quality right-footed center back. And again, getting younger, using this year as a sort of bridge year to get back into contention for you know maybe Champions League or at least Europa League in the following year. Like I'm trying to be quite sort of level-headed about this year um, because I know that the finances are tight. What I want to see is some sort of discernible progress and also this team getting a lot younger and sort of trimming the fat with a smaller squad that comes with not being in Europe. And so selling players potentially like Willock, Maitland, Niles, um, and, and just sort of culling the, the largesse of this squad, which I think has sort of been in the process of happening over the last couple of weeks. All good things in my book.
2: That it'll, all in all, I think that'll end up being a good transfer window from Arsenal. I think getting younger is exactly what this team needs. I think it makes the job a lot easier on Mikel Arteta if this team gets younger, you know, a team that is a bit more willing to listen to his ideas. I think he definitely kind of uh, butted heads with a few of his senior players last season, and that led to some confusion and concern and whatnot. I do want to go back to PSG, though. Mm-hmm. I think that is a a very interesting case that we need to look at because... They are assembling, you know, as close to a win now situation scenario as you might possibly see in soccer at over there at PSG currently. You know, you look at the players that they've signed on free transfers this summer. Mm-hmm. Genie Wynaldum, in his own words, expelled from Liverpool <laughs> uh, following us not loving him enough. Uh, no, I'm just joking. I understand what he was talking about. We love you, Genie. Uh, Sergio Ramos as Nathan mentioned, Akhraf Hakimi, you know, solving their long, their long heralded issues at fullback. Uh, he'll be coming in to play right back for them. And like, what a what a solution he's going to be from Maurizio Pochettino and almost kind of a perfect Poch player. Caleb, you and I were talking about PSG over dinner on Saturday. You know, we were stuffing our faces with Rohan Duck, talking about... The Rohan Duck, a type <laughs> of duck. Talking about, you know, the potential of This PSG team to finally, finally achieve Champions League glory. And I think when you add a player like Sergio Ramos in the list of accolades and, you know, leadership bona fides that he has, even if he's not going to play every game in Liga, and maybe you could argue that he probably shouldn't given his injury history in the past few years, that's a pretty serious acquisition when it comes to making a statement. In terms of winning in Europe, you know, same with Alden too, you know, coming off the back of winning the Champions League two seasons ago.
1: No, yeah, I mean, this this is PSG's. We got to win the Champions League this year, and it's probably our best chance since we were in the final because Mbappe is unlikely to sign a renewal, I think, and he's probably gone. Neymar is there, but he only plays like six games in Ligue 1 a season. So, like, how <laughs> effective is he? I wish I was kidding, but I'm actually like not. You you guys have seen that stat, right? He's only played he's played twenty or fewer games in Ligue 1 every season he's been there. He last played year, he sixteen only played,
2: games last season. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's it's nuts. And he also gets,
0: like, two red cards a season as well, but nonetheless.
1: Well, that's half the reason is because he's suspended for, like, the other 23 games of the season. And he's Um, also in
0: Brazil celebrating his sister's birthday.
1: Yeah, like, yeah, whatever. He's, like, barely a footballer. But you look at the other teams around in Europe, and it's, like, City have made no major transfers this summer. They lost Aguero and Eric Garcia to Barcelona. Obviously, the former is bigger of a loss than the latter. They have not bought a striker to back up Gabriel Jesus, which means I think we're going to probably see a bit of the like Foden, you know, mini messy type situation. Um, so, City have not gotten stronger, I would say. Bayern have also not notab- noticeably improved. Um, they brought in Uba Makano, who's good to replace Alaba, but on the attacking side, Lewandowski and Muller are both going to be a year older, and so it's hard to imagine they get much better than they did last year. Madrid, which we can talk about in a moment, have had a pretty horrid transfer window, I would say. Yeah, they the made biggest no, losers of all of Europe. They've made no major signings. They lost their two starting center backs, and they brought in Alaba, who doesn't really, I think, make up the loss of both of them. They still don't have a striker, really, to back up Benzema, Eden Hazard is a question mark. Vinicius is a question mark. Rodrigo is a question mark. Asensio is a question mark. Odegaard's a question mark. Danny Chabayos is a question mark. Isco, who knows if that man's even going to be playing Isco soccer. Isco like a, a fat question mark. Yeah, like, I don't know why. Honestly, Everton might be better than this Madrid team
2: uh, that Ancelotti picked up. And I wish I was kidding, but I'm not sure I am. You want to know something wild? Yeah, Madrid have not paid a transfer fee for a player in two and a half years. I think since 2019 was the last time they actually like paid a transfer fee for a player.
0: So that just everyone goes wants to-, to emulate Juve, but they just can't do it as successfully. That just kind of goes to show how
2: uh, dire a financial situation they were in, and why Perez. Has been championing, you know, or was kind of working in in secrets until it was very much not secrets, the European Super League. And without that, you know, without that avenue for extra revenue, like Madrid are, you know, really in some dire circumstances. And going back, we have, I don't think we've even talked about Carlo Ancelotti going back to Real Madrid and leaving Everton in the lurch. We talked about it a bit when we talked about Benitez. But Carlo definitely is going back there as the, you know, the feel good, the vibes coach. You know, after you know Zidane's acrimonious departure, uh, pretty hard yeah. feelings between him and the club, it seems. And Carlo Ancelotti is someone who you know is kind of in the twilight of his managerial career, looking for you know a few last big jobs before he inevitably hangs it up. And he's not gonna say no to coaching Real Madrid again. You know, a job where I bet he feels like he has unfinished business from last time, even though they treated him quite poorly towards the end, which is kind of hilarious. But, you know, he's never going to complain about, like, lack of signings or lack of, you know, funds to improve the squad. They have kind of the perfect manager in there in order to deal with the circumstances that they've been given this summer. You know, David Alaba is a good transfer, I think, As just by himself, you know, without with them getting rid of Sergio Ramos and Varane, I think it makes life far more difficult for him. But, yeah, it's not great. It's certainly not great. And especially in a season where you look at, you know, Atletico Madrid strengthening with Rodrigo de Paul. And you could even say, you know, Barcelona strengthening with the likes of Memphis Depay, Aguero, Garcia, Emerson, Emerson. So Who I, I think, think
1: is an interesting one. but
2: No, I think Emerson is very good. We'll see. I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult season for Madrid and incredibly, another incredibly difficult project for Carlo.
1: Yeah, so I, I don't really know why in the press and the media Madrid have sort of been way less in the news in regards to their financial problems in comparison to Barcelona. Considering, you know, money-wise, we're pretty much in the same dire straits, but Barcelona have been able to, I think, make a bunch of shrewd moves bring in Memphis Depay on free, bring in Aguero on a free, bring in Eric Garcia on a free, bring in Emerson, who played a few games for the Brazil national team at the Copa America for only $8 million after buying up Betis, while still being able to sell players and cut costs, while being able to get Messi to agree um, a reduced salary so that we can fit under the cap for La Liga. I don't know. I just don't understand. Like Clearly, that there are moves a team like Madrid could make And they just seem unable to make them. And I also don't know why someone like Ancelotti, who is treated poorly by Perez, decided to go back to Madrid. And it's now since come out that Perez is pretty much horrible to like every single person at Madrid. I mean, we've heard the comments about how he doesn't think Casillas was ever that good. He went after Raul. Who else did he go after in those leaked audio? He went after Ozil. I mean And Ramos this, as
0: well, don't forget. And
1: Ramos, this man has such utter contempt for like most of the star players that have come through the team that he runs. And honestly, in the past few years, he's been running it poorly. I I don't understand why people aren't like, Wow, this Madrid team is utterly atrocious. They were destroyed by Rangers in a friendly. And I know it's a friendly, but it was still kind of shocking the degree to which Rangers dominated Madrid. And I look at La Liga, as you said, with Atleti going, frankly, strength to strength, and they might get even stronger if we do the Griezmann swap deal, which seems less likely now. But Sevilla remain probably as good as they were last year. I think Betis remain good. There are other good teams in the league. I honestly don't know why Madrid think that now that their defense has been gutted, which has honestly carried them through the past few years, why they think they're even going to finish top four. I think this is the year Madrid could end up in the Europa League. That's my like hot take. Unless well, they, I, think they they end up, ch- I think they
0: end up worse than that. You think Conference League? Yeah, I think I think right now this Madrid team is going to finish like fifth in La Liga. Yeah, but that'd be a rubber league. No, maybe maybe even lower. Because other teams like Atleti have gotten a lot better this summer, <laughs> I would Nathan, say. Nathan doesn't know <laughs> what play what
2: he's so Arsenal haven't finished in, in the Champions League spots in so long that he's forgotten how to count. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's fair. Four. No, that that's fair. Oh wait. Nathan is like banned. He's like, this is like you think you know the
0: Europa League? I was <laughs> born in it. <laughs> Brand <laughs> the Europa League. Anyways. Anyways, I think Sevilla are a team that could finish above them, although they have like eight pending transfers in the works right now, as they always do every year. Um atleti are poised, I think, to repeat. If uh you know, I think they are would love to see Madrid just totally capitulate as as a club, you know. A few years ago, they were talking about making like $2 billion in stadium renovations, and now they can't even afford to buy a player on the open market. So,
2: I think a few things, Caleb, on why I think Madrid have kind of gone to the radar a little bit in terms of their financial situation. One, I don't think their debt is as incredibly staggering as Barcelona's. Uh, two, Perez takes is kind of a lightning rod for all of their issues. So I think all the controversy excuse me, all the controversy kind of gets enveloped into him and his persona and his personality, and he kind of distracts from the rest of the club. Er, er, three, I don't think they're creating, like, as many crazy headlines as, as Barcelona. And even though know, Barcelona have managed to, you know, navigate some of the debts somewhat and also register all of their players, like, it ended up being kind of a non-story. It was still wild to hear the fact that, like, they couldn't re-sign Messi because they were over the cap and they couldn't register the players that they had signed on free contracts like Depay and Aguero and things like that. But, yeah, I don't understand why. Like, I mean, I think it is because Perez is just so absurd that he takes a lot of the brunt. But I think Madrid are in some serious, dire situation right, right now. And they've lost you know their biggest leader of the past over a decade in Sergio Ramos. And I think we've seen what happens to teams like Manchester City. You know, when a player like Vincent Company leaves for even a season, you know, they experience a bit of a you know downturn in form. And I think you look at Ramos and Varane leaving, and, you know, you look at you know Luka Modric is going to be 36 this season. Tony Kroiz is going to be 32. Gareth Bale is still eating up some of their wage bill at Madrid. And, and by some, I mean 400000 a week. I don't know how they navigate a situation like this this season, especially with a manager like Carlo, who clearly is not, you know, the greatest manager of the 2000s anymore. And like Nathan said, I could see this being the season where they slip into, you know, that fifth place spot. I could also see it where they just managed to finish in fourth too, but certainly not, this is not a contending team for any competition at all.
1: You know, we we've done a good whip around of some of the major transfers, uh, and there's still a few more weeks left. But I think the the overall mood is that the market is is quite subdued this summer, and even the biggest teams are are struggling. But I think we had a few more stories that we wanted to touch on. The first is one that Nathan brought to our attention, which is that Football Manager, the premier football management simulation game sponsor us fm um, oh, please, please. Oh, do you know how many God.
0: hours of my life i've devoted to football manager i've probably spent at least a month in real time playing football manager you know
1: my favorite thing about football managers in the settings it actually tracks, <laughs> it tracks how much time, time. but what and it then does
0: signs like a label to you like addict
1: yeah no but it also does something where it'll say how much you spent on it and it divides it by the time to show you your like effective rate per hour. And so the whole point being that like, once you play enough time, you're paying like a cent an hour or less to to have bought the game, Um, which is their way of showing you like, oh, you've justified your purchase, which I think is pretty funny, but getting back to the story, they in a very detailed, very well-written blog post unveiled that they are in the process of introducing women's leagues into Football Manager, and I think it was probably one of the most impressive announcements related to like women's soccer I've like seen.
0: I would say more than that. It was it, that should be used as like the textbook release in communications school. It covered. It was written by Miles Robinson, who's I, I want to say the founder or maybe the CEO or executive director. I forget his actual title, but it was. It covered every single base. It answered all of the questions. It provided a timeline and reasoning for this I think, move. Is it Miles
2: Robinson, the U.S. men's national team player? Or I, is this also the FM guy? I think... Same guy. Are you, think,
0: are you, are you thinking... If, okay, so Miles... Miles football. Robinson is definitely
2: the U.S. MNT for Atlanta United. Sorry, Miles oh, Jacobson.
0: Yeah. Miles Jacobson. <laughs> you can understand my confusion. Miles Jacobson is the... Uh, is the, uh, See, it's the funny because I just looked up Miles
1: Robinson FM and it just showed up with an
2: FM database <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Sorry, yeah. continue. He's the this. studio director. So he's the management director of the game.
0: So, so Miles Jacobson covered every single base possible. He provided a timeline. He also laid out the fact that like it's an investment, but it's one that needs to be made similar to how energy or um, clean energy requires people to take a loss in order for it to end up doing good in the world Um, you know it takes time and money and you know they talked about having to translate I think it was like there's like 30,000 different strings for players of like things that they could say that need to be translated into like 140 languages and then also changed to make them either gender neutral or like woman specific so it's an investment but it's one that I'm really glad that they're going to take because Um, I think it's going to help, you know, continue to grow the women's game, continue to legitimize it in the eyes of many doubters. Um, And all in all, like, women's soccer is really cool and really fun. And the growing success and, I guess, stability of leagues like the NWSL or the WSL in England, um, you know, it's good for soccer as a whole and also good for, obviously, women's soccer. So I'm quite pleased with it.
2: Yeah, and I think just on a pure you know, entertainment value level and in terms of, you know, women's soccer being involved in a game like Football Manager. The main point in Jacobson's, you know, letter, his open letter, was that, like, there is a glass ceiling in the women's game and it's important to acknowledge that that's the case right now. And it should definitely not be the case, but it is the way it is currently. And having women's soccer be involved in such a, you know, heavily marketed and played game like Football Manager is just going to mean that like so many more people actually get to experience, you know, these players and these teams get to discover, you know, and fall in love with new teams and new leagues like Nathan was talking about. And like you just look at, at, at the players that we've kind of that we, you know, we discover by playing FIFA or by playing football manager. And a great example of this is I remember, you know, the, the sporting director of Hoffenheim talking about how he discovered Roberto Firmino on football manager, and that's how they decided to, you know, scout Roberto Firmino and sign Roberto Firmino. So things like this have, you know, real-world implications on, you know, not only fandom, but also, you know, the general direction of of the sport as a, as a culture. So this is an incredibly bold move for football manager it's a necessary move and it's one that's going to definitely make me um buy the next edition of the game to support this
0: yeah and we should probably note that it's not it's not going to be implemented for at least another like year or a couple of years because you know as as he pointed out in his letter the football manager database is the result of like 18 to 20 years of like intense scouting and you know all of these different algorithms and that Those kind of databases for women's soccer are just starting to be built up with sites like Opta and Transfer Market, et cetera, et cetera. So it will take time, and I'm sure there's going to be bugs and delays because that's just how the world works. But by and large, it's a really great move, um, and I'm looking forward to playing or signing some of like the former UMass players who are now in the pros to my Arsenal women's team um, in the future. I think sure. that just about wraps it up for today. We'll be back probably next week or the week after with a, a...
2: I want to talk about Rooney two-footing, one of like the two <laughs> players he has available to him at Derby. Right, no, which kidding.
0: is... Yeah. We'll, be, we'll probably be back in in a week or two to do a Premier League preview and also look at La Liga and maybe some other leagues from around Europe as well. It's incredible to think that three days and two weeks from now, we will be watching Arsenal versus Brentford in the opening match of the 2021-22 Jesus. Premier League season. Why does Arsenal just... always open the season? Probably because we start First with letter a. Yeah, no, exactly. And Brentford
1: starts with B. Also, they want to have like a good uh, relegation preview match. Together. No, but
2: last season you we are Arsenal so funny. <laughs> well, no, it's true. Last season, like Arsenal played Fulham, and we were all like, "Yeah, oh Fulham God. are going all right. down."
0: All right, and they you know they did end up going down. Yes, and then Arsenal the best game, the best game Willian ever played in an Arsenal jersey. Was that his
2: three assist game? Yeah, it was his three yeah. assist game. Although
0: he ended up only getting credited with two at the end of the day. But hey, now you have two Willians now. So Went
2: downhill. Okay, I gotta go because I spilled some
0: coffee over here. <laughs> well, that'll do it for us for today. We'll be back in at least you know a couple of days or a week or so with a look at some leagues from around Europe. As always, thank you for listening. We are so glad to have you along. I've been Nathan Strauss. I'm Nick and Caleb Reds. And we will see you all next time.